one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So guys, I I found an aircraft carrier. You found an aircraft carrier. What, yeah, like in the basement. What do well, you mean? I was, I was hanging out in in you know the Indian Ocean, and I just found this aircraft carrier, and I'm trying to figure out like, is anyone missing one or was it lost? Did it have its maybe its mommy wasn't there? Did you walk up and say, "Are you my mother?" No, I I walked up and I just scooped it up, and I have it. And I want to return it to whoever owns it, but found I, aircraft carrier. Right, it's it's lost you know, its way in my pocket. It's. <laughs> And so I, that is an aircraft carrier in your pocket. <laughs> I'm also happy to see you. <laughs> Shane had to go there. It's me we're talking about. <laughs> and there's Scotch. Have we met? Shane Harris, 13 years old. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Vinson Lose Some edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal. Never been on the USS Carl Vinson. I just want to point out that that is, you know, puns are the lowest form of humor and that is a bad pun. <laughs> it's so good though. That's like the best title we've had in it's weeks. It's so bad. It's the Vinson, the Vinson Lose Some. I, th- I thought I think we, we need to talk about Devin. <laughs> that was also great. A little more obscure, I think, if you haven't seen the movie. But I feel like the people who got it really got it. Yeah, and probably went, oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. Ouch. Jesus, you guys. <laughs> Rough. <laughs> I am here in the Jungle Studio with my friend Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Coffin Wittes. Hello, everybody. Hey, Shane. And we're oh. here with a, oh, what? <laughs> ben is celebrating the return of the scotch. <laughs> he is. Would you like to tell everyone what we learned this week or last week, we, by the way? T- Shane invited me to a scotch tasting. And he and I learned at this scotch tasting that there is a giant and categorical difference between cask strength scotch and regular scotch. Mm-hmm. And so I have replaced the scotch at the Jungle Studio with a bottle of cask strength Laphroaig. It's the hard stuff. And Ooh, we so are uh, <laughs> enjoying it during this taste. Dur- yeah. Not tasting. We're just going to uh, upping the ante. So by the end of the Trump administration, we'll be like freebasing heroin. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> seriously, cask strength heroin is the only way to go. <laughs> but, but seriously, people, if you have recommendations of good cask strength bottles, Please. Uh, we are all palettes and, and and it will guarantee that the end of each episode will be better than the beginning <laughs> <laughs> absolutely all right this week on the cast strength podcast north korea's missile launch fizzles but the ripples spread far and wide cia director mike pompeo calls wikileaks a hostile intelligence service and the globalist nationalist war in the white house does it really matter in the absence of a coherent foreign policy you know hey does anything hey, matter? I'm just going to throw that out there. Does anything matter anymore? And if it's not cask strength? Maybe I will have a glass of that scotch after all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk about North Korea and the uh, uh, the missile launch that wasn't. Um, 
So if, if you were a reporter at a major U.S. newspaper, you probably spent the weekend preparing to write a story about an ICBM launch or a nuclear bomb going off in a hollowed out mountain someplace. And then... Pfft, yeah, so they showed a whole bunch of cask strength missiles at this yes. parade, and then the actual missile launch was, it was, was watered down. Was, it was not watered only down. diluted. It was not cask strength. Yeah, not cask strength, but it blew up. I as, think the missile may have been made of casks, <laughs> like barrels or something. Yeah, like. wood catches all, fire. All the all the missiles they've been launching have been blowing up of late, or eighty percent of them. Mm, or something. How curious! How curious! Mm. Uh, and uh, this one was no exception so score one for the uh you know for the hackers at nsa right (laughs) um but the implications of this of this non-event have been pretty eventful i think it's fair to say um so just today actually the president was asked uh, a question at an event whether or not the american people should fear a thermonuclear war with north korea and his answer was well you just never know you have to be prepared for things to happen so, <laughs> I don't know if the president That's is aware of some, for you. yeah, some particularly fearsome ICBM arsenal that the North Koreans uh, uh, are about ready to use. But it has obviously put North Korea back front and center uh, for the administration, and a lot of tough talk, a lot of ships being deployed that aren't actually going to Korea, yeah, a lot of talk of pressure going on China. The right direction. Yeah, exactly. Um, what do we, I guess, the, I mean, what the hell do we make of the, I think if we can make more of the response perhaps in this podcast than we can of the actual North Korean missile program. But what, what struck you all is about the, about the way that the United States responded to essentially a non-event. And with some of it prudent response, I mean, by saying like, look, we're not going to attack North Korea preemptively, although not everyone's on the same page with that, I guess. Look, I think the um, the episode both illustrates what a high-stakes situation we're all in with having Donald Trump as president of the United States and sort of further underscores, to the extent it's even possible, the incoherence and, frankly, incompetence of this administration. Um, so we didn't just have tough talk. We had grotesquely irresponsible talk, um, including sort of leaks from unclear origins about that maybe the administration uh, planned to assassinate uh, Kim Jong-un. The uh, Pentagon really, really strongly coming out very quickly saying that's a really irresponsible thing to say. That's the kind of thing that might uh, goad him into taking, uh, you know, preemptive measures or preemptive action. Um, Right. So you you really do see sort of um, the lack of discipline and 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 sort of strategic sense, uh, presuming those those leaks came out of somewhere in the White House. Uh, you know, the other thing is sort of the, uh, you know, was this bomb dropped in Afghanistan intended to be a signal to North Korea? Um, kind of the entire foreign policy national security establishment really set itself a Twitter this week over trying to understand whether or not there was connections between those two events. Um, I think it's a it's more evidence of uh, like a foreign policy or national security committee trying to make sense of something that is fundamentally senseless. Um, when I again, I don't think there's a coherent policy. I don't think there's strategy in advance. I, Tammy's looking at me well, skeptically. I'm not sure. I, I would agree with you that I don't think there's strategy, but I do think that what we've seen so far suggests that the Trump administration 
took to heart the briefings that they got from the Obama administration as part of the national security transition in which it was reported that the Obama folks put North Korea at the very top of the kind of threat priority list for the incoming administration. And it seems as though the Trump folks have taken this to heart. Vice President Pence's trip out there is the third trip by a senior U.S. official. Both Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson went out to East Asia to work this issue with allies just in the first few months of the administration. And I think it's significant. But underlying that, I think that there, it, this is one of those really, really vexing international problems that both Democrat and Re- Democratic and Republican administrations have struggled with and have come to solutions that if you're trying to read tea leaves about the, the Trump administration policy, it seems as though they're trying to set aside or go beyond the policy that had been laid out by Obama and before him, George W. Bush, which was basically strategic patience, meaning try to deny the North Koreans technology they need to advance their program, try to delay the progress of their program, and in the meantime, wait for the the regime to collapse economically. That's been the policy for a long, long time. And that's, I think, what the Trump folks are saying they're not comfortable with um, because they see an acceleration of North Korean uh, development and testing. And the North Koreans have successfully been able to continue acquiring technology for their missile program and put together more advanced missiles, even if they are getting hacked and falling into the sea, they're continuing with the program. So delay and deny isn't enough anymore. So if I wanted to connect the dots in a rational way, I could see a policy shift here that makes a certain amount of sense. What I don't see yet is a strategy for uh, actually denuclearizing the peninsula, which is what the Trump administration says its ultimate goal is. And what I also don't see is clear agreement amongst the key international partners that the United States would need in order to shift and put more pressure on North Korea. They seem to want to do a sort of a redux of what the US and the EU 3 plus 3 did on Iran, which is get a big international coalition together to put the squeeze on the North Koreans. But this is a very different economy. And there's only one country that can put up the squeeze on the North Koreans, which is China. So I actually want to take that a step further. I actually really disagree with what you said, Susan. I think the last three administrations have an unremitting record of failure with respect to North Korea. And it is a record that is uh, quite consistent. They, They use different rhetoric, but they all did the same thing. And it was a strict policy of bribery um, and offering offering nice things if the North Koreans um, gave up their nuclear program. And, or, or just suspended it. Or suspended it. And and the, the demands kept going down as uh, their behavior got worse and worse. And I think it is perfectly reasonable as this administration comes in in an environment in which they are reaching the critical point with respect to missile delivery and and warhead miniaturization. They're reaching a point where we simply can't tolerate it anymore. And I think it is perfectly reasonable for an administration to come in and say, we're going to try a different approach, which is an approach based on um, based on making clear that we are actually prepared uh, to 
you know, go nose to nose, toe to toe. Uh, uh, include up to and including war in order to get you to back down and to force China into a, uh, a more aggressive posture with respect to North Korea. And I have exactly one problem with this policy, which is that the person who's doing it is somebody I absolutely don't trust to do it effectively or, or uh, with a um, – or with – you know, the kind of deftness that will actually prevent uh, something awful from happening as a result of it. But I have to say, I think it is the right policy. And I'm, I'm, I've been, I was angry at the Bush administration for not doing more of this. I was angry at the Clinton administration for not doing more of this. And I was angry at the Obama administration for, for not doing more of this. And the only defense you can make of any of those administrations for the weak need wuss policy that they adopted toward North Korea was that there were no good options. Uh, and the only, th and, and I think that's. Well, isn't that still true though? I mean, you say that the United States should be prepared to be more aggressive and say that it's, you know, willing to pay a price up to and including war but i would say number 1 the number the us service members in south korea are already a tripwire for war they, as are 10 million south koreans well civilians. right but from the perspective of us policy the fact that we have people on the ground there matters a lot but there that is still a terrible option and it's not it's not credible. I think what Trump is trying to do here is trying to play a sort of madman's poker with one of the regimes, which, you know, is a real madman. And I just don't know that that's credible, you know, as a way of, of pushing the North Koreans harder. I think the real avenue is the Chinese. And, and I don't think it's credible to the Chinese that the United States is ready to go to war if they don't cooperate. I think it's, it's more that the United States is shifting, shifting its policy. You don't know what it's going to come up with, but you might not like it. It might be secondary but, sanctions. But it's, exact, it but it's exactly the caution that you just described that have caused uh, 20 years of administration tolerance of the development of a nuclear and missile program by this regime. I don't and disagree that the outcomes have been negative. I just don't think that the alternatives are any better now than they were before. Right. But, but, so, but the question is, how long are you going to wait in order, you know, if you believe, and I do believe, that uh, this is actually not a fully rational actor, and this is, uh, you know, the Trump or North Korea? <laughs> Both, actually. But, but and then we have to ask that question. And this but, is but, the but, but, but Kim yeah. Jong Un, you know, that 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 this is a regime based on extortion, and that they will use whatever power they have. Do how long do you want to wait? Right now, they have. You, you know, we've waited until I mean, they've long had 10 million South Koreans under under uh, artillery threat. They now have the ability probably to nuke, at, at, you know, parts of South Korea if they can have a delivery system for it. Do you want to wait until they have the ability to nuke California before you do something about it too? And my, my, my point is that I do not fault the administration at all for for – 
coming in and saying this situation is unacceptable and we're going to take a completely different approach to it, understanding that that approach has some risk, a lot of risk. I do fault this administration for doing it with its usual uh, 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 bombast and uh, you know inability to speak in a moderate uh, or uh, therefore compelling way because they you know they talk about this exactly the way they talk about you know bombing ISIS uh, bombing the shit out of ISIS or tearing up the Iran deal and so you have no idea what they will and won't do and the result is that the deterrence they're trying to create is actually very hard to take seriously but I'm quite sympathetic to the and policy just, just to I mean look you're describing like we must have been reading different news cycles this week because like I I don't disagree with you right that that the past policies have been a failure and there's time for sort of a shift. Um, I don't see this strategic sort of um, one being tough on China. No, he had sort of the visit uh, uh, afterwards. China's not a currency manipulator. No, I learned after 10 minutes of talking, this is really very complex and and actually it certainly is not acting like somebody who's getting really, really tough on China with these issues. Oh, no, I didn't say anything about getting tough on China. I said something about forcing China in the position in which they have to do something because they don't think will back down. Right. But in terms of applying pressure, that that at least I'm not seeing indications of that being part of the policy. We're seeing um, different statements from Tillerson, from Mattis, from the White House are once again sort of not entirely clear what the what the plan is there. Agree. Message discipline, not right? their And flip-flopping on all kinds of other... Right. Yep. Like, the, the again, the leaks and then the statements disavowing the leaks and... Right, so again, that chaos. the drum when you can't actually back it up because your aircraft carrier is going in the wrong direction. And then finally this like this big powerful statement, wah, wah, <laughs> right? Like I don't, I don't, I just am not seeing the strategy or the policy that you're seeing here at all. Okay. So hang on. Let me, let me, let me distinguish between two things. One is the question of whether they have articulated, you know, a different policy. They, they don't articulate anything very clearly. Um, the second is whether we have a different posture. And I think we do have a different posture. And the posture is, you know, we are not there, – there, there's nothing about our posture that is conveying what, what Obama used to call strategic patience. We're conveying uh, this needs to stop and, uh, you know, we're prepared to do what's necessary to uh, make it stop. And so if the, if the question is, are they executing competently, the answer is certainly not. If the question is, have they in some meaningful sense uh, shifted some aspects of policy, I think they have. So I'll just – let me add just one kind of forward-looking point because a lot of the um, determination of the effectiveness of this shift will have to do with Chinese behavior, how they understand what the U.S. is doing, what they're willing to do to respond – and, you know, the fact is that the North Koreans have been able to continue acquiring this technology for their missiles, mainly through interactions with Chinese company, they, Chinese companies. They've been able to keep their economy going by selling coal to China. If it wasn't for those economic relationships, the North Koreans would have collapsed by now. Um, and so, you know, there are basically two pathways for the United States to try and choke down that flow of technology in and, and coal out. Um, one is to get the Chinese government to do it for them. 
um, which seems to be what they're trying to do. The other, though, is to do it themselves, to use secondary sanctions in the way that the U.S. did for Iran very successfully by making it you know, difficult for Chinese companies that do business with North Korea to do business with us or anyone else. Um, and I, I guess <laughs> we will see a test of whether the Chinese, you know, perceive a challenge from the Trump administration that will get them to change course. But I also, I think it'll also be an interesting test of just how much the Chinese government can actually control economic activity, you know, by these smaller companies within China that are making money off of North Korea right now. How central is China's economy anymore? It's an interesting question. All right. Last week in his first public remarks as the head of the CIA, Mike Pompeo gave a speech at the Center for Strategic International Studies here in Washington uh, and pretty much used the occasion of his speech to go after WikiLeaks and make what I think was a fairly remarkable comment about how he at least, and I think it's fair to say this is probably a widely shared view in the administration views WikiLeaks. It is, quote, time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. Them's fighting words. Them is fighting words. Uh, he went on to say that Julian Assange, head of WikiLeaks, and his kind are not the slightest bit interested in improving civil liberties or enhancing personal freedom. They have pretended that America's First Amendment freedoms shield them from justice. They may have believed that, but they are wrong. Uh, this was a pretty remarkable speech. I thought maybe I'm just looking at this more from the lens of a journalist, not because that I think that WikiLeaks is clearly a journalistic organization, although I've said in the past I think it occasionally engages in journalism, and there are some things that I think that it does that don't meet the standards of what we consider journalism. But to call it a hostile non-state intelligence service um, strikes me, I mean, I'm not a fancy intelligence lawyer, but strikes me that there might be some legal implications for that. And as I wrote about it in the paper, I said, you know, it signaled a as yet unclear policy on how the administration is going to deal with WikiLeaks, but clearly they're changing their view uh, on what it is. And if you talk to officials about this after the speech, they will say that they felt that there was a perception that the Obama administration didn't want to go after WikiLeaks or be tough on WikiLeaks because they thought that that would impinge on First Amendment issues, which I was a bit unpersuaded by. I don't recall Barack Obama being a big old softy on Julian Assange. But Susan, let me ask you, I mean, just from the in, in the first instance, his his statement um, that it's a non-state hostile intelligence service. I mean, A, is there a basis for that? And what does that mean from a practical standpoint about what the U.S. government could do to WikiLeaks? Yeah, so um, look, that's about as accurate a description of WikiLeaks as I've ever heard. Um, I think he's spot on in describing it that way. And, and that might not have been true from the original sort of uh, version or iteration or, uh, you know, sort of the, the early days of WikiLeaks, um, but it's 100% true now. Um, I don't think that it's a statement intended to have lots and lots of legal significance, right, that they're like being designated as a non-state actor so that the United States can do something against them. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's being pretty clear about sort of uh, separating the difference between WikiLeaks is Russian intelligence versus, you know, WikiLeaks is, is acting for their own purposes and is occasionally abetted by Russia. Um, but look, if you... Uh, 
look at the releases, um, attempt to find a unifying principle. Um, it's attempting to cause damage or harm to Western powers. Um, I don't think they engage in, in journalism or, or can be viewed as journalists in any meaningful sense, although I, I agree sort of they, they accidentally happen by it every now and then. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I understand the discomfort with sort of Pompeo's statements about, you know, we're not going to let them hide behind the First Amendment. That starts to feel uncomfortable and like, well, what exactly do you mean by also, that? Also, Julian Assange is not a U.S. citizen, so why are right. we even bringing why up the First Amendment? talking about That made it. me a little itchy. Yeah, so there's something, I think it's an, it's an inartful way to describe, um, really something that has occurred over the past sort of 18 months, which is, um, the way in which Russia in particular, uh, has exploited particular features of American society, including the ways in which we consume information, um, and some of our, you know, deeply held First Amendment values, um, in a way that, uh, essentially sort of weapon Weaponizing it against us, right? That's kind of the fake news thing. Um, I don't, you know, in terms of, you know, has the Obama administration, was the Obama administration aggressive against WikiLeaks or not aggressive? You, I don't think it's sort of a question of what is going, what are they going to do to WikiLeaks and specifically? I think it's more sort of the way they're going to talk about WikiLeaks. My hope is that what it signals is a change in the amount of information they're willing to make public, right? That they have intelligence information underlying this assessment. Um, there is information underlying the intelligence community's assessment they were they really went into detail about sort of WikiLeaks at a at a highline level but they mm -hmm. didn't offer much in terms of why they were making these assessments regarding the connections between Russia and WikiLeaks um so my hope is that what he's saying is hey um we see this for what it is we aren't going to allow uh, them to do this anymore to sort of get away with this anymore and the the way we're going to do that is to really lean forward on explaining how we view this organization and why um so that we can inoculate ourselves against some of the more pernicious elements i don't know that the like the the barn door is already open in terms of you know now everybody has secure drop boxes and maybe you just move to the next platform um that said i was not pr i was not as troubled as other people were uh, either by sort of pompeo's statements or the characterization of wikileaks i i haven't heard any kind of compelling argument that this is anything other than a non-state hostile intelligence service. Can I just say that uh, mo uh, there are journalism organizations that are non-state hostile intelligence services. I mean, so like intelligence people and journalists, I actually said this once in a speech at NYU. Um, and, you know, people have these sense that these are these are sort of hostile mutually antagonistic entities, but they actually largely do the same thing, which is, you know, they gather information, they analyze the information, they publish the information to their clients, they jealously guard their sources and they and their methods, and they uh, don't believe that anybody else should be able to equally jealously guard their sources and methods. And th that, that description applies to you know, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, and it applies to the CIA and NSA. And so they're like, I've never met two groups of people who are more similar in activities and character and uh, and ambition who 
see less of themselves in one another than journalists and intelligence operatives. They're just jealous because we do it better. Well, well even <laughs> DOD had gotten sort of trouble for, you know, some of their um, operational manuals uh, referenced this exact point that there's a lot of times what, uh, you know, espionage or journalism can look like espionage or espionage can look like journalism. Um, they yeah, took get, a lot of heat for right, that. People get really upset about that, but it, it it's just true. And so is... What WikiLeaks is doing from the CIA's point of view, being a hostile intelligence service? Of course. Is it from Julian Assange's point of view, gathering information that's real and, you know, making it available to the public? Sure. And is there something related to journalism involved in that? Of course there is. Well, and, I think, well, but and, Mike Pompeo and, wasn't coming out and accusing the New York Times of trying to undermine U.S. Right. No, no, but, 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 well, but, but, but okay. But now, but now think of a foreign based organizations say in the embassy of a country that we don't have really good relations with that publishes only stuff that's hostile to the United States and and Western interests and does it for some ideological reason, only instead of publishing it and calling it WikiLeaks, you could call it, oh, say, uh, the Daily Worker. And there'd be no doubt that there was in some sense that that was journalism. It's just it's just a particularly nasty uh, form of, of, of publication. But I think that would be not fair to the – I mean, I'm sure they would see their mission as informing the public and right. liberating people from falsehood, not – as a political organ with an agenda of discrediting, you know, that just depends on where you sit. I think the only reason to be concerned about the parallels that Ben is drawing is if you believe that Pompeo's characterization of WikiLeaks as an intelligence service implies some sort of governmental response, <clears throat> either using legal tools or using, the tools of force, you know. Um, I think but, it does. So, you know, the daily worker or government-sponsored propaganda has been out there forever, right? And and it has always been a challenge to um, articulate clearly other than, you know, look, this is government-sponsored, the difference between that and what you and I would call legitimate journalism. Right, well, we, okay, we, so the the question is not whether these things exist in the world. They do, and they have for a long, long time. The question is whether this characterization by a senior American government official implies some kind of official state response that we would regard as inappropriate. Well, I, I, would just say, I would just say that it should certainly imply that people like Mike Pompeo should stop citing WikiLeaks when it's politically convenient for them. And it <laughs> we should, can all agree on uh, that. No, because, but, because he, he made this speech without reference to the fact that he was a propagator of WikiLeaks material when it was politically convenient. He tweeted it. He tweeted it. He tweeted it. it. And he uh, works for a guy who says, I love WikiLeaks. He works for a guy who says he loves WikiLeaks. Uh, he, as far as I know, has not denounced Sean Hannity for uh, repeatedly for having Julian Assange on his show and, and tweeting, you know, free Assange. And so if this is a hostile foreign intelligence operation, and I think it is, I also think it's a weird form of journalism, but if I, if it is a hostile intelligence, then I want to know, did he identify himself as an agent of a foreign 
intelligence operation insofar as he was a propagator of, of this material. Well, so look, clearly Mike Pompeo is a hypocrite, but I already think we've like we've missed a really central crucial point, which is that just because two things look like one another, that doesn't mean that they actually are the same as all at all. The difference between uh, there's a fundamental difference in goal and in mission set. So the goal of journalism is to print true and newsworthy information. So we can um, debate what is true or not true and what is newsworthy or not newsworthy. But that's the fundamental goal, right? It's the publication of that type of information. The goal of an intelligence service is to either support uh, or advance the interests of your own nation state or harm the interests, right? Uh, uh, somehow uh, counter the interests of another nation state. What uh, by, by characterizing WikiLeaks as a, a non-state intelligence service, I think uh, I think the the reason why that's uh, a critical point is because the goal is not about the publication of true and newsworthy information. We know because they've redacted large pieces of information, they've published things with essentially no news value, and the only unifying sort of characteristic of their of their releases is attempting to harm Western countries, uh, despite their sort of um, uh, claimed. Uh, uh, you know, aff affinity for you know transparency, right? That this is sort of you know and, and liberty. Um, that's a really critical distinction. Uh, I I think that the goal of WikiLeaks is the goal of an intelligence service designed to harm or help, n not journalism. So it's okay, different I, I, things. I, I am. I find myself in the odd position of defending WikiLeaks, which I'm. I'm just for the record. Not gonna do. Well done, Susan. But um, <laughs> but uh, but I don't think that distinction. You're like is... Shane trying not to call somebody Hitler. <laughs> right. I, um. I. So I actually don't think that distinction uh, works. Um. First of all, there's a lot of propagandistic journalism, and there's a lot of journalism that is designed to help or hurt, and uh, you know, and is done is is done with a strategic objective, not merely a truth objective, particularly journalism in, you know, countries and by governments, uh, state-run media that we may not be uh, really attracted to. So I don't think that distinction. And secondly, uh, sometimes what the, the modality of the way WikiLeaks has done stuff is to actually release and publish truthful information, real information. Um, now, I don't happen to think a lot of it should be published, but I just don't think the distinction here between functioning as a foreign intelligence service and functioning as journalism is the relevant one. My point is whether they're, whether they're functioning as journalists or functioning as an intelligence operation, they're bad people who are doing bad things and they're stealing stuff and, and, and I don't, I think what they're doing is bad. If it's journalism, it's really bad journalism. Uh, and, and, and if it's intelligence operations, it's an intelligence operation, which I don't believe. I don't like what they're doing. I don't, I don't really care what the noun is that you attach to it. But we should care because we don't want the distinction between what is protected speech and what is um, behavior that should be countered to be based on how like individual people feel about what they're doing. No, and and the, I don't, but, I think it's a different the, thing. But, here. but, but, the, but, but if it's, Illegal to receive the information if the material, if they're involved in a conspiracy to steal the information, that's whether you call them journalists or whether you call them intelligence operatives, it's equally illegal. But those are two separate things, receiving information versus being involved in a conspiracy to obtain. Well, right. Different. So look, it, but I think if they simply received information – 
and they weren't involved in any other aspect of it, they're passive carriers of it, they're going to be protected. Now, they may not be covered by the First Amendment, but that's a different, that's a different issue. Um, they're, they're, they're not going to get prosecuted for being the passive recipients and public publishers of, 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 of information precisely because that would have implications for genuinely first, first amendment protected organizations. I just, I'll just end with a quote from Pompeo, which I think this answers the question, not what is the new policy going to be, but is there going to be some action by the government in light of this new assessment of WikiLeaks? He said, quote, we have to recognize that we can no longer allow Assange and his colleagues the latitude to use free speech values against us. To give them the space to crush us with misappropriated secrets is a perversion of what our great constitution stands for. It ends now. Ooh, that is troubling. There's no what comes next, but that that to me, that's what you call teeing up a policy. I mean, okay, you tee up a policy, I'll evaluate the policy. I don't understand how somebody who does what he has done in the past and who represents somebody who has tweeted, I love WikiLeaks, uh, and who has said all the things that Donald Trump has said about WikiLeaks and, and, uh, you know, Quinta and I and Jordan Bruner published a long list of them uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't understand how somebody like that, without explaining how he has changed his views, um, or how the organization has changed, can credibly say that. Sure. My point is that he was wrong before and he's right now. So I agree he's a hypocrite, and I agree he should be uh, articulating his change of heart, but the wrong bad behavior was the previous statement of using WikiLeaks material and sort of waving it around, not the not the letter. I also okay, think it's so, hilarious that he gave that speech knowing damn well that he tweeted about WikiLeaks before, right. and it's like, so? So, so I, I actually agree with you, Susan, about that with the one caveat that I don't think this distinction turns on whether you call it journalism or whether you call it intelligence. Okay. Glad we got that all figured out. Now on to other distinctions without meaningful differences. Uh, the globalist-nationalist divide in the White House. Cucks! <laughs> or, or as or as a photo... <laughs> God, that's so bad. <laughs> I can't a, believe you said that. As a podcast I listened to a lot, uh, recently called it War of Cucks. <laughs> Or Game of Cucks. Yeah, Game, Game of, of Cucks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an ugly word. Um, uh, so I guess my question on this, so that, as background to this, obviously you have the um, globalist, which is a, a word that I actually don't like using now because of the way it's been appropriated by people who consider themselves not globalist. Uh, so you've got the wing of Bannon and his Sebastian Gorka crew, on one side, and then presumably Jared and Ivanka, and I guess now McMaster on the other, or does it go the other way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which ones? The, they're yeah, they're the globalists, yes. the nationalists, and they're at war with each other, and they're fighting for the presidency, or and the globalist camp is ascendant, and the nationalist is camp is on the decline. Um, my thoughts on this and are number one: this White House is a big telenovela by design. It's a, it is a giant soap opera. Um, and that is, I think, very much a, a, a feature, not a bug. Uh, as, as we discussed last right? week. Right. Two, we're ultimately talking about 10 people or so. So I don't know how these are like wings within a White House that's at that in any meaningful way when there are 
hundreds and thousands of people in an administration who can exercise influence in other ways, especially when well, you can't keep <laughs> well, when you can't keep track of an aircraft carrier. I'm going to guess there's a lot of room for you to make some maneuvering <laughs> of your own in the bureaucracy. I'm just saying you might be able to get some things past this president. That's all. Um, but really, I just wonder if this is overshadowing like the larger issue, which is, I mean, it seems to me this is a great story for the Washington press corps of whose stock is rising and whose is falling. And I think there's probably a lot of schadenfreude in the press corps as well, seeing Steve Bannon get his because he's been such a critic of people in, in my camp. Um, and well, ultimately, I think that's why people don't like Steve Bannon. You think? <laughs> I think it's probably like well, skin. the press corps. I think it's why it's, <laughs> it's those goddamn cargo shorts. <laughs> Um, For Shane, that's a real reason. Oh, and if you put Tevas on that, just forget it. Also, Go live ask, with Julian Assange. In the bathtub. Just oh, jeez, uh-huh. we're gonna talk about that. Um, we've never we've never broached that on the podcast, <laughs> and we're not starting now. Um, but, but I think this is actually obscuring like the bigger issue, uh, which is there's no coherent foreign policy. I mean, the idea that there's a globalist and a nationalist wing within the White House seems to me that it suggests that one of these two wings actually has a, a coherent policy view of the world that they are just waiting to pop out of the briefcase and put to work and it's just not true they don't it, they very clearly do not they have opinions on things and they have very they have strongly moods. held ones and they have moods but there's no policy going on here well I mean, and i i think that's exactly right first of all i i regret to say that most of the media coverage of the administration on this issue is horse race coverage it's as though the campaign never ended and i find it frankly really tedious um, and and unilluminating. But second, I, I think that there's the lack of strategy that none of these people, with the possible exception of Jim Mattis and H.R. McMaster, um, none of these folks have thought so broadly or deeply about the U.S. role in the world. I mean, I think McMaster and Mattis are exceptions, actually. But, you know, they haven't come into office with well-developed views about what the administration should be doing on major international issues. Uh, and they're not, they can't do that overnight. But in addition to that, I would say that the lack of staffing at senior levels all across the administration on national security and foreign policy leaves them incapable of developing such an approach, even if one camp won tomorrow and Trump's mind was made up. And it's illustrative, I think, um, the reaction to the referendum, the constitutional referendum in Turkey that was held over the weekend. Within the space of 24 hours, we had a statement recognizing the results, but expressing some mild concerns from the State Department. Then we had the White House press briefing from Sean Spicer saying, we're not going to comment on this until the OSCE report. And then hours later, a readout from the White House, the same White House of President Trump's congratulatory phone call to Turkish President Erdogan. And the fact that you had those three things, two of them from within the White House, demonstrated to me that it's not just about lack of strategy. It's about the lack of connective tissue between the different arms of the foreign policy agencies in the government, you know, that you couldn't even get the message right. It's like, I think we've used the analogy, maybe you've, or I've heard it. It's like, it's like when the hydraulics go out, right? And you're pulling the levers, but there's nothing moving uh, uh, the appendages. Right. So if the president wanted to do a phone call with the Turkish president, it's very easy if you have a staffed administration to let everybody know that. And then at a minimum, the State Department will just shut up and wait. 
you know, <laughs> but but they couldn't even do that. And I think that's more about empty chairs uh, and lack of connective tissue than it is about lack of strategy. It's also about chairs not talking to each other. There are people in acting positions and I think they clearly don't know who to talk to to coordinate. And, you know, I don't – I can't prove that. But it's not like there's nobody at the State Department whose uh, notional job it is to coordinate with somebody at the White House about what you're going to say about the Turkish referendum. I think those people clearly just didn't touch base. You almost make it sound like maybe they were being quiet on purpose. Mm. Yeah, I mean I- – no comment. I'm a little I'm not bit helping out. baffled that sort of this like globalists versus nationalists or the axis of adults versus whatever the opposite Does that mean of that, that Steve is. Bannon is a baby. Yeah, that's good. A lot um, of things, yeah. Got the diaper rash on his face. Crying oh. babies. Um, like the, the, that's even uh, the construct we're working with here. Whenever like it's it's really clear that the construct in the Trump White House is Trump family members and everybody else. And so yes, other people's fortunes may rise and fall. And um, for a man who sort of is obsessed with personal loyalty, uh, Trump doesn't show much for very long. Uh, right? We've seen him turn on all kinds of people. Right? He kind of does the like, oh, I, I don't know that guy Manafort. Who are you talking about? Steve Bannon. I think I met him like once or twice. I'm not Steve. Um, right. So we've seen like how quickly he turns on people. Um, so sure, right now there might be more influence by one group or, or another. At the end of the day, and I believe it was Jared Kushner who said this, um, there are only three people. In the, there are only three people. Uh, he was speaking about that campaign who can't be fired. Uh, and that's him and the Trump children. And so. I, four, I think it's important. It? For some reason, I thought he said three, but maybe it was four. <laughs> of course, was, never Tiffany. He was leaving out <laughs> never Eric. Never even. Um, right, and Baron, you right. know, also. Uh, <laughs> Baron can be fired. Hacker extraordinaire, <laughs> as we heard. Um, and so, like, that that seems to me to be uh, the actual enduring narrative here. And so it's, it's really a question of, you know, what do, what do Jared and Ivanka feel on that particular day? And who do they think is more reasonable? And more to the point... Um, who do they think is uh, guiding them uh, or, or promoting Trump's uh, Trump's brand or interest in a way that's actually going to inure to their brand management and financial interests, which we know is the uh, ultimate controlling uh uh, interests here, uh, you know, right, this, um, this New York Times story, uh, by Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush, um, that sort of talked about how their first priority is winning the White House in 2020, not in order to implement, uh, policies over eight years, but because it would, it's viewed as catastrophic to the Trump brand. They wouldn't be able to sell anywhere except for Oklahoma City if they don't win again. So I, I think that we should sort of, we should take all of these shifts as fundamentally temporary in nature because that's the way Trump treats personal relationships, uh, professional relationships, advisory relationships, everybody other than his own family members. I, I think that's it's worth highlighting that degree, that continuity. I think there's another continuity that's worth highlighting, which is unpredictability. And we've talked a bit about this before, but Trump kind of has made a big deal through the campaign and through the presidency so far about being unpredictable on foreign policy and not signaling to your adversaries what you're going to do. And and he seems very proud of this. But I, you know, I think to a certain extent, that's marketing the chaos of this 
uh, unstaffed, incoherent, unstrategic administration and marketing it as a net plus. But I also think it is a feature of Trump's leadership um, before he came to the presidency. It's the way he likes to control people is by having them always off balance. And that's, you know, that's the apprentice. That's apparently the way he ran his company. And so it's no surprise to see him continue to use that approach in national security policy. Of course, in national security policy, that can get very, very dangerous. It must be nice to have sort of like an explanation for no matter how uh, bad you are at your job or what you do, like you can just be like, oh, no, no, this is part of the plan. I need to come up with something similar for yeah. lawfare. Like, uh, you know, look, it's, it's a all plan, part of the plan. chaos. It's about provoking conversation. So anytime I say something stupid it's or the misspellings of a new Middle East, I'll be like, yes, no, <laughs> this is all about my strategy to, you know, uh, <clears throat> We're working it out. Provoke controversy. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. work on it. All right. We're going to move on to object lessons. But before we do that, um, we asked listeners last week to uh, tweet at us with a couple ideas. One about what the hell Susan's necklace was about. <laughs> and the they hell? delivered. <laughs> you guys delivered. Way to go. So I'm going to read a couple of these. Uh, Jamil Raglan writes that Susan's necklace contains the souls of Christy, Ryan, Priebus, and everyone else who sold theirs to ride the Trump train. It's very light. <laughs> 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 Very tiny. Uh, and then Chris writes, and I don't get this because I don't read Harry Potter books. Yeah, I guess. this one's my favorite. The necklace is Rex Tillerson's fifth horcrux, <laughs> a new one each week for object lessons. <laughs> Somebody explain this to me. You should it, watch. It holds a piece of Oh, I'm of not going to go watch it. Okay. okay. That's all you need to know. All right. That's fine. Uh, and then Miguel Hernandez, because uh, we have the back of a napkin question for solving the Korea issue, says, I've solved the Korean problem. We fused them together <clears throat> through a great deal, a wonderful deal. Leave China the big loser out. And he has a very helpful back of the paper towel diagram of the Korean Peninsula, which is now Super Korea, and China, a.k.a. the big loser. It's, that, it's man. so great. A national Super Korea. Position. Super yeah. Korea. Um, all right. Uh, uh, Susan, you want to do your object first? I will go, go first. Um, my object lesson is, uh, it's hard to even explain. It's, it's an absence. It's a lack. Um, and that is that I cannot access Sebastian Gorka's Twitter feed. Neither Don't. can I. Because he has blocked me on Twitter. So I only figured this out because somebody else had tweeted something that he'd said with a comment. And it was like, it said this tweet is no longer available. So I thought, huh, that's weird. Like, maybe he <coughs> deleted it. Or sometimes, you know, there's like a little bit of a glitch. So I click on it. Lo and behold, you are not authorized to view this tweet because he has blocked me. So I'm completely baffled. Um, ben has now joined my ranks as well. Yeah, I just want to say I complained because I was... I was um upset that Susan has this status that Gork had blocked her, but he hadn't blocked me. So And and he listened. He so, obliged. Right, so I just, wanna, nice I just want to thank Sebastian Gorka <laughs> for hearing my pleas. And within 24 hours of my pointing out that Susan was blocked and I was he not. Remedied. I, he, the problem was remedied. This is your White House being responsive. So I have a theory on this because in your comment, you actually tagged like at Seb Gorka. Um, I have actually never interacted with him. Like I've never retweeted him. I've never referenced his name. I've like, so I was sort of baffled. Like how exactly did this person even find me? How did they know to block you? My 
theory is, and this is just a theory, I think he must search his own name on Twitter oh and my then God. find people who say mean things. So tweet that's like mean things. That's like Googling yourself. Well, so, okay, everybody, wow. tweet mean things about <laughs> Sebastian Gorka and, you um, too can and use the hashtag mean about Gorka. <laughs> and... Uh, but don't don't add, don't use his Twitter ID. Just use his name and say mean things, and let's see who gets blocked, and we'll figure out if if Susan's theory is correct. Doesn't have to be mean. Just like dissenting foreign policy or national right. security views. Apparently, suffice. I've never like attacked the man no, personally. Go, go mean. Mean about Gorka. Hashtag mean about <laughs> this Gorka. This is not in keeping with the spirit of Melania Trump's anti-cyberbullying. Yeah, That's correct. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Susan. I, but I, I do like your theory, and I suspect that it's correct because he just seems like the kind of guy who would Google himself a By the lot way, the way to regularly. go, don't block people, mute them. Because when That's, you yeah. block them, they see that you did it. Right. Yeah. When you mute them, they just cry in the dark for the rest of their lives. They yell into the void. <laughs> All right. Tomorrow, what's your object? Oh, well, I have a far more sober object, which is that today we mark the 22nd anniversary of the bombing of the um, federal building in Oklahoma City uh, in 1995. And... Um, I was thinking about this this morning because of the anniversary, but also because in some ways it was that event uh, that kind of drove m me and Ben in, we were in very different careers at that point to um, work more on terrorism issues. I was at that point working for a professor who studied intelligence and national security at Georgetown, Roy Godson. And, um, Partly driven by that worst domestic terrorist attack in American history, we then co-authored uh, a study of what we don't know about domestic terrorism and what we would need to know in order to do a true net assessment of the domestic terrorist threat. Um, and Ben was at that time a, a journalist working at Legal Times and ended up spending a great deal of time covering the debate over the counterterrorism bill that passed in 1996 as a result of the Oklahoma City bombing. So it it was an event that affected my trajectory, uh, my professional trajectory in significant ways, as well as an event that I think affected our country deeply and shaped um, shaped the way we think about the terrorist threat in the homeland. In some ways, I wish that the memory of Oklahoma City were more prominent in our contemporary debates about terrorism. I think that we're so fixated on one particular threat uh, that we we don't think um, perhaps as broadly as we could uh, about resilience. And one of the things that my object is actually uh, the webpage of the Oklahoma City National Memorial uh, in Oklahoma City because the process of creating that memorial was a really amazing example of community resilience in the face of a horrific attack that killed over 150 people, wounded over 600, was deeply traumatic for an entire community. And uh, and they took about a year to put together this task force of several hundred people across the community um, to figure out how to memorialize the event. It was an incredibly consultative process, 
And the result, I think, is deeply meaningful, including this webpage that tells the story of each and every person who lost their life that day. Um, so I, I think that Oklahoma City's resilience is perhaps a model that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. And so that's my object for today. Yeah, um, just to sort of bring it to contemporary events, um, Merrick Garland uh, was one of the chief prosecutors and investigators on that case, and uh, even after being nominated by the Supreme to the Supreme Court, um, said it's the most important thing he had ever done in his life. Uh, so, for those who do know my husband, <clears throat> he's known to go shopping in antique shops, and we have one in particular that we really like here in DC. Um, name it, name it. It's called Goodwood. Oh, I on love U Goodwood. Street. Goodwood's awesome. They were, like a half of our house comes from Goodwood, and it's great. Um, uh, and so he actually went a week ago and, and found what is my object lesson and actually did not get it because he thought, well, why do we need this? We don't have a room. Shane will just think it's funny. And he always rolls my eyes at me. He rolls his eyes at me when I bring home like random coffee tables and the like. And I actually made him call back and buy this thing because I could not believe that he actually passed up the opportunity to get this. Does anyone know what that is? Wait. wait. What? It looks like you know the the suitcase it's like that a briefcase with knobs with uh -huh. nuclear codes. Uh huh. No, really. No. No. It's a briefcase with knobs. Is it like a number station and thing? dials? And Is it a like radio a little in a suitcase? Piece of paper with needles that would write on it as they're taking readings from the various knobs. Like a Richter yeah. scale. No. no. It's, it's a polygraph. Oh. oh. That is a polygraph. Oh, they don't look like this at all anymore. Right. It's a polygraph from like 19, the 1950s, we think, actually. Maybe the model was updated in the 1960s. And my wow. favorite part of it is when you close uh, the lid, there's a little metal corporate logo right on the outside. Halliburton. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> it is an authentic Beautiful. Halliburton lie detector. Come on over for cocktails and lies. <laughs> And truth-telling at our house. Um, all right. That brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at our website. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and find us on Facebook. Whenever you don't let, download the podcast from your favorite podcatcher, please remember to leave a five-star rating or high rating of your choice, preferably higher than four stars. And we will polygraph you. And we will polygraph you. you. And I just sure. want to say, the show this week is not brought to you by... Halliburton, Halliburton, which did yeah. not sponsor this week's episode. <laughs> Nor when you're will they in need ever of, a, of an 80 pound polygraph machine, Halliburton, manufacturer of fine polygraphs <laughs> since, since, since 1957. 1957. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the show is edited by Jen Howell. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our music was performed this week by the hot new K pop duo Carl Vinson and Carmen Sandiego. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> Like Wait, that? is the Carmen Sandiego thing a Tillerson reference? No, it's Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? But why Carl Vinson and Car Oh, because they didn't ship. know where the aircraft carrier yeah. was. I get it. And K-pop, too. I get it. That's, trifecta. That's good. Total trifecta. Right. No, of course, our, our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who um, I'm pretty sure she, well, she couldn't see the Carl Vinson from her house, but she's probably closer to it than we are right now. But Sarah Palin could see it. Sarah Palin could totally see it. She can see it. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 